the imagination of many, right? Um, think, think about even just, think about the history of the world. Think about Homer's Iliad. If you know what that is, the ancient Greeks would look to characters in that novel and be inspired. Or, or take um, during the medieval era, you have Camelot, King Arthur, right? And there's, there's these figures that people would look to and be inspired by. Or Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Or maybe in the last hundred years or so, the Chronicles of Narnia by Lewis. Or uh, the Lord of the Rings. Certain, there's just something about story that gets into the way we think. There's something unique about story that, that shapes the way that we view not only the world around us, but, but our own lives and the role that we play in the world. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yet as intriguing as fictional character, characters or plots might be, it's all the greater when we study real historical events and real historical characters in the Bible. Now I say that because I believe this is God's holy, inspired, living and active and inerrant word, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But, but you have to understand, if this book is true, which I believe it is, the events that we're learning about here with Hannah, with Samuel, with King David, with Saul, with all these people, these were just real men and women like us that had bad moods and experienced rainy days and walked this earth and had fights with their spouses and all of those things. Yet what do we see behind all of that? An almighty, sovereign, gracious God dealing with his people, glorifying himself, pointing forward to his son. The book of 1 Samuel is truly, guys, it's a masterpiece. It is, it is a masterpiece that deals with kings and queens, international wars. I mean, it's, it's got this, this book, if you've ever read it, it's, it's like a rated R film. I mean, it's, it's got it all. It's, it literally, I mean, it, it's, it's got a deception, murder, everything is in the book of Samuel. I'm so thrilled to be unpacking it together. You know, the book of Samuel is, is kind of like, I don't know if you have Netflix or Disney Plus, but maybe if you, if you watch or stream a, a series on either those or Stan or, or whatever, if you've streamed a whole series, sometimes in the very first episode or two, there's characters that, that come into the plot that you're not quite sure where they came from or what they're on about, or there's little clues that at first you're kind of going, what was that? But then by the seventh or eighth episode, or even season two, then you're able to look back onto the first episode or two and say, ah, now I get it. You know what I'm talking about? That's how this first chapter and second chapter is in 1 Samuel. 
What we get to see is that God is the one who raises up and God brings down. You have this God opposing the proud but giving grace to the humble. It's a phenomenal, it operates really, I won't give, I won't spoil too much of the book, but but the way that these first two chapters operate really give you a sneak peek. Really, it's almost, you get, you get to see this backstory of this kingmaker, Samuel, who the book's named after. But more than that, I hope what you can see is you can look beyond that and say, ah, oh, okay, now there is, there's these little motifs, there's these themes, there's stuff happening that's, that's going to be picked up later in the book. Does that make sense? So this story is not just about a desperate woman who feels emotional and God grants her prayer. It's a greater story of God being gracious to this woman, yes, but it's not just about that, right? It's not just about, oh, well, you know, come on, let's, let's just, ladies, just be Hannah. No, 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 it's, Hannah is imperfect, though she's a godly woman, but she approaches the Lord in desperation, and God in his sovereign grace meets her and, and not just provides a baby for her, but one that will be a kingmaker who will anoint Israel's first two kings, Samuel, David. And eventually we get pictures of this anointed king figure. What's that pointing towards? Christ, the anointed one. So there's the spoiler. So I, I'm thrilled. This, this, this book, honestly, this week, if you haven't read, if you have not read 1 Samuel, you have not lived. And I would encourage you, listen to it on your phone when you're driving to work or have a go at reading it. Fathers, mothers, read this to your kids. I read this to my kids yesterday. We read it to our kids this morning. And they're like, wow, what a powerful story. Yes, this is just God's perfect inspired words that he gives to us. And so have a go at reading it. This was when I first became a Christian. Okay, so I didn't grow up in church at all. But when, I, when God saved me at the age of 17, I just began reading 1 Samuel and I just loved it. I just read it again and again and again and again. And it's, I just encourage you. I, I was 17 have a go, man. Just read. And I, I've read this, I don't know how many times since. And every time I'm just inspired, challenged, encouraged, et cetera, et cetera. Again, stories help us view the world around us. They give us an, a, a, a lens, a grid of which to see what God is doing then, what God is doing now. So that said, we're going to get a backstory on this kingmaker this morning, on this guy, Samuel, who the book is named after. So why don't we go to the Lord and ask his blessing, and then we'll, um, we'll just start going through it here. This is, it's a great, yeah, it's a great book. Father, we again thank you for these narratives, these real events that occurred in time and in space and in history, and yet, Lord, they are timeless truths. So we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would open our eyes Show us the Lord Jesus. Grant faith, Lord, to those here sitting now that don't know you. May they see a faithful Lord of hosts, powerful God who comes to save his people from sin.
We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So, Ralph, man, good on you, dude, for reading those in very difficult Hebrew names, especially in the first, first few verses. If you guys do notice in the first few verses, though, um, maybe you just, you kind of, if you've ever read for Samuel, you're just kind of, oh, what, how can so-and-so, Zophi, 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 whatever. But there's one little bit that you have to catch. It's, it just names the location, and here's why. If, if you open up your Bible, it says, it says that these, these characters come from the, notice the hill country of somewhere. Can you see it? They come from the hill country of Ephraim, right? Now you might hear that and you go, big whoop. Why would I care if they come from the central coast or Ephraim or like what? Why does, why does that matter? Because Ephraim, the hill country of Ephraim, this is where the story left off. What do I mean? Well, in the book of Judges. Book of Judges, chapter 17. What do we have here? It says that there was a man in the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah. Good guy or bad guy? Bad guy. <laughs> in fact, the nation of Israel is going down, as you guys would say, the gagala. All right? They are going just worse and worse and worse and worse of the society. And, and in fact, the book doesn't end on a high note. It's dreadful, horrific, physical abuse that happens to this woman. Following that, Israel, rather than fighting its surrounding enemies, breaks out into civil war against each other. And they all lived happily ever after. No! No, 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 look, I mean, look how the book wraps up. And the people of Israel departed from there at that time, every man to his tribe and family, and they went out from there, every man to his inheritance. Here we go. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. How lame of a conclusion is that? I mean, honestly, if you were watching this, if you were watching this, if you paid 25 bucks or used your voucher for the extreme screen, and that's how the movie ended, you would be like, this, I want my money back, even though I didn't, the government paid for it, but I, I still, I want, I want something back for that. That's a terrible ending, right? Israel's hit an all-time low spiritually. And that's where the book ends? In the days of the judges, Israel had no king, Boy, it's painstakingly obvious they needed one. Would you agree? But if you flip over just a page from Judges, minus the book of Ruth, and you flip over just a page, we pick up where we left off. We pick up where we left off. Where did we leave off? In the hill country of Ephraim. But this time we're moving forward. This time we're starting with a godly family who are regularly going to worship the Lord in Shiloh. The author picks up where judges concluded. But do you see the subtle shift that's occurred now? We're taking steps forward with a faithful, God-fearing family. 
Now we have this lady named Hannah. She's our main character. And she's about to give birth to a prophet. But not just a prophet, one who will establish kingship in Israel. You understand monarchy. Remember, in those days, Israel had no king and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now, monarchy will soon become a reality for God's people. And it will be Samuel who anoints these first two kings. We're about to enter into a new era. The era of Israel's monarchy, which is brought about by the birth of this king maker. But as we look at these first few verses, what's going on? I mean, that sounds all good, but what's happening? If you're still awake, what's happening? Well, she's barren. Right, where, where, where's this hope of the kingmaker? I mean, you need to have a kid in order to have the kingmaker, right? It's fascinating how major shifts in biblical history begin with barren women. You think about that? I mean, think about ladies like Sarah, Abraham's wife, or take Rebecca, or how about Elizabeth, the one who gave birth to John the Baptist? Barren women seem to be God's instruments in raising up key figures in the history of redemption. God tends, listen friends, God tends to make our total inability his starting point, you see? When his people are without strength, without resources, without hope, without human gimmicks, that's when he seems to stretch forth his hand from heaven to glorify himself. Come with me to verse 2. Look at this here. Verse 2. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Paniah. Now, Paniah had children, but Hannah had, notice, no children. Now, we hear that, and we go, yeah, okay. But you have to understand. Like, one of my kids heard that, and they said, well, why can't she just adopt, right? Well, you have to understand, barrenness in the ancient world was a total gut punch. I mean, particularly for a married, obviously a married woman, I mean, her husband's hopes and dreams depended upon her providing him with a son who will not only carry on his name but inherit the estate. Which explains part of the reason why he takes on this second wife. Doesn't make it right. It's not what God intended from the very beginning. Genesis 2, 2.24, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, singular, and the two shall become one flesh. But nevertheless, maybe he just gave up on trusting in an heir. Now he's just going to go, what works? It's amazing when God's people began to think not what's faithful, but what's work, how things go pear-shaped. But here's the deal. We can't miss this bit. Her barrenness isn't random. It's not just bad luck. 
It's not like what people here say on the Central Coast. Ah, oh, bad luck. Ah, oh, he's unlucky. No. Her barrenness is providential. Look at the end of verse 5. The Lord had closed her womb. Can you see that there? If you're tracking along in your Bible, verse, end of verse 5. The Lord had closed her womb. Can you hear the author's worldview coming across there? The Lord did this. It is God who opens and closes wombs. And because of that reality, nobody has, who's had kids has really done anything that's worthy of their own credit. And in the same way, nobody whose womb has been closed has necessarily done anything that's worthy of shame. Look, this idea is going to be important for understanding the whole book of Samuel. Nobody who's tall has made themselves tall. You with me? Nobody who's attractive has made themselves that way. Nobody who is at the right place and the right time put themselves there in that position. The Lord is sovereign over all these things. He causes us to be born when we're born, where we're born, with the opportunities that we're given, you see? He's in control of fertility and infertility. The Lord is sovereign over all this. And as a result, nobody who is, say, fertile, the second wife, has any right to boast about her fertility and to shame Hannah. Yet, that's precisely what's happening here, isn't it? Notice verse 6. Come to verse 6 with me. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. Now, notice this is not a one-off, okay? This is not just a little snarky, catty remark that she made. No, notice verse 7. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. Terrible situation, isn't it? Hannah, her rival, she took special delight in using this pilgrimage where you go worship God as a way to sort of twist the knife to Hannah. Don't know what kind of conversations happened back then, but maybe as they were heading off to Shiloh, it's like, all right, all the kids in the car. Oh, wait, Hannah, where's your kids? Oh, that's right, you don't have any. Maybe, maybe some of Paniah's kids says, Mommy, Mommy, why doesn't Auntie Hannah have any kids? I don't know. Why don't you go ask her? But I think the real reason is God's cursed her. Put yourself in that space. Again, this was year by year that this happened. It's rubbing it in all the more on a time where you were supposed to be worshiping God celebrating, feasting, eating together. This is basically their Christmas day, if you can picture that. Time where families come together, where they celebrate. By the way, Hannah, she's got like more presents under the tree than anybody. She gets a double portion. But that doesn't negate the space she's in. 
the turmoil she's experiencing. It doesn't take away her pain. So once the sacrificial meal is over, she just can't take it anymore. She finally just breaks. And she abruptly rushes away into the night. And in verse 9, this next scene, we find her at the tabernacle's entrance. Verse 9. After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. You just picture that, right? Being mocked, and she just, I can't take this. She stands up, and she leaves. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. Wow. What a scene. Can you, can you see that in your Can you see that in your mind's eye? But notice, what does she do in her distress? What does she do? Does she pull a, a, a shack novel and curse God? And Mama God comes to her rescue? No. What does she do in her distress? What should you do in your distress? Bank on doctrine. <laughs> that's what she does. Not just the, oh, that's, of course the pastor says that. He likes all that weird stuff. No. How does she address God? Doesn't cuss him out. Doesn't shake her fist at him. Oh, Lord of hosts. What a way to address God. Hannah addresses God as the Lord of hosts. She turned to the one whose universal rule encompasses every force or army, heavenly and earthly. That's what that means. This God, Hannah's God, is the one she trusts in. She knows this God, and she studied this God in the way that he interacts with his people. That's why she says, oh, Lord, would you look upon the affliction of your people? What does that smell like? Moses burning bush. What does God say? I have seen the affliction of the people in my, uh, right, in Egypt, and I've heard their cry. I mean, if the Lord has done that corporately, certainly he could see my own affliction. If the Lord gave Rebecca, who was barren, children, certainly God could do that once more. And remember me. What does that smell like? Think of Genesis, and God remembered Noah. So how is she able to pray all this stuff? She knows her Bible. She knows right doctrine. She knows to approach God in a certain way that gives him reverence and respect. She's able to interpret her situation in light of what she knows about God from the scriptures, from the stories that she would have learned about God remembering Noah. By the way, that doesn't mean that God forgot about Noah. It's not like, you know, God's up there in heaven in the ark, and he goes, oh, my goodness. Noah, that's right. What was your name again? No, no, no. God came to Noah, treated him with grace, you see. Went, came to his cause. So, so do you see? Look, look how she prays. Look at these echoes from what we've already what she would have heard. Notice verse 11. 
And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. She knew this God was faithful to his people in the past. But do you see her posture there? Do you see her attitude? I mean, you would think a woman that had experienced barrenness, that had been mocked for it, that's been rubbed in, you'd think that she says, just, just give me a kid. But she is praying for that, but, what, but what's her posture? Give me a kid so that I may give him to you. Willingly give him up all the days of his life. You see that there? It's, it's a lifelong dedication. Now, here is this woman, in her distress, banking on doctrine, pouring out her heart to the Lord, and she's, con she's completely swept up in this prayer, right? Consumed by this prayer. But unbeknownst to her, there's another fellow in this little story here, and he's just watching her, kind of shaking his head. It's the priest. That's Eli. Come with me to verse 12. Notice verse 12. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put away your wine from you. It's interesting, isn't it? I mean, here's a guy that should be leading God's people, and he can't differentiate between someone that's praying and someone who's drunk. Which also is, there's two bits to see. There's sort of two ways to think about that. One is, yes, Eli is a bit of a bonehead. He's definitely a derelict father, as we'll learn about in next week. But remember, this is just during the time of the judges? So how were people's morals and ethics back then? Not so good. So could it be that Eli is just, oh, here's another one. Like, in other words, he is not accustomed to seeing people in distress actually crying out to God, but what is he used to seeing? People that are drunk. So that's why he says, put away your wine, put away your beer. And what does she say? I'm not, pour I'm not pouring myself another drink, dude. I'm pouring my heart out to God. Look at verse 15. But Hannah answered, no, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a, notice here, very interesting, worthless woman. Literally, daughter of Belial. Daughter of the underworld, a demonic idol that was worshipped at that time. Can I give you a, a spoiler here? I'm going to spoil it. It's just so audacious of Eli 
to judge this woman. And she says, I'm not a worthless woman, but when you go to chapter 2, verse 12, notice the word, same word that's used. Now, Eli, he has two sons, and who, how are they described? Worthless. They're sons of Belial. Hey, dude, look in your own backyard, man. I mean, it's just, it, it's just amazing to me. And so she says, I'm not. I'm not doing that. I'm actually pouring out my heart before the Lord. And so how does Eli respond? Eli responds and he says, go in peace and the God of Israel grant your petition that you, you still tracking with me there? That you have made to him. Now, there's an interesting, you can't see this in English, but there's an interesting play on words here in, in Hebrew. Hebrew loves to use puns and to play on words. Notice, if you look there again, go in peace, the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. The word there is sha'al, okay? Which I don't expect you to know what that is. But sha'al is the name for Saul. Okay, so here's the deal. Samuel, Samuel's name is not Saul. Two different guys. Still with me? But I think already we're, there's a little... The author is flagging this for us, that there's a way to approach God and ask for things that you can give to him and be obedient to him and have a posture towards him. And then there's a way to ask for something that demands it so you look like the other nations around you. And remember when Samuel, well, we're going to come to this in the next few weeks, when they say, we want a king like everyone else, he goes, here's the king that you shawl, that you asked for. Isn't that interesting? So just, just put that one in the back of your mind because we'll, we'll come to this. But what happens? What happens here in verse 19? Well, he says, you can go in peace. She's her completely, her disposition is, is shifted now. They rose early in the morning, worshiped before the Lord. Man, that must have been a sweet time that morning. Then they went back to their house at Ramah, and Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife. And the Lord remembered her. There it is. Remember that with Noah? The Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have Sha'al asked for him from the Lord. And then, lo and behold, baby comes, baby is born. Nurses the baby for probably about three years, give or take. And then, just as she promised, gives him back to the temple where he serves as a prophet with Eli the priest. And that's where he grows up. Now, we can't end there, though. It's a, it's a fabulous story of God's faithfulness to his people. But we can't end there because... Hannah gives us an interpretation of all of this that just happened. And not only, like I said, not only is it a reflection on her own life, but it's looking forward. Now we get some little hints dropped in about what's going to happen throughout Samuel. 
we have these massive reversals. You with me? Huge, massive reversals. You have the strong and the weak, full and hungry, barren and fertile, dead and alive, sick and well, poor and rich, humble and exalted. The Lord can and does reverse the fortunes of people. Have you noticed that? God turns losers into winners and winners into losers. Notice, Hannah prays, and I think she really did pray this, but I also think, again, this is like the Netflix stuff. Remember the first season or two that you watch? These are these little hints for us. And Hannah prayed and said, notice, my heart exalts in the Lord. She's not exalting in her fertility, is she? She's exalting in the Lord. See, the difference between those who are proud and self-reliant and those who are humble is that they know God and exalt in Him. They know who gives children, or they know who gives intelligence. They know who gives military might. So that's why she says, and it's interesting language here, notice my heart exalts in the Lord, my horn is exalted in the Lord, my mouth derides my enemies. It's interesting, isn't it? What's she saying? Paniah, look, I, I actually love, I, I, I scorn the way that you view the world, your worldview. You think, you think you have children because you're good. And I didn't have kids because I wasn't worthy. Rubbish. So you see what she's doing? She's addressing her rival. But in so doing, it's as if she's preparing us for what we're going to see from Saul, Nabal, and Absalom, from all the wicked people across this book. The wicked people in Samuel are going to be self-reliant, like Paniah. And they're going to look really good in the eyes of the world. Saul was a head taller than anybody else. This is the guy you'd want to be your leader, right? He's, I mean, just look at him. He just looks like Chris Hemsworth. Or Nabal. Nabal was a man of massive wealth and strength. But what happens to Nabal? The Lord strikes him dead. Or take Absalom, Mr. Fabio. Right with his beautiful hair, who wants to grab the kingdom by force. God opposes the proud, give grace to the humble. These people, what are they? They're self-reliant, they're strong, they're proud, they're like Paniah. But God brings them down. Look at verse 3. Love the language here. Verse 2, actually. There is none holy like the Lord. For there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Wow. Isn't it amazing? It, it, it totally, you see that there. The, the weak made strong. The strong brought down. Let's keep reading. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread. 
But those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash peat to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. I mean, if you're born seventh in a family, like King David was, and Samuel rocks up to your family and he goes, all right, God told me I need to anoint a king here. And the first brother rocks out and you go, that's the guy. Nope. Next one. Nope, nope, nope. Is there any more? Yeah, there's this little runt, David. And he's out mining the sheep. I guess we'll go get him. You know, the, the guy that you'd least expect. God chooses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And then look, he will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. God is going to bring about salvation. Now notice this. This is key. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king. They didn't have a king back then. You see what I'm saying? See how this is already flagging for you? The idea of kingship? He will give strength to his king. I love the language here. And exalt, if you have an ESV, it captures it quite well. And exalt the horn of his anointed. Horn. What's that? Well, that's what the alpha male used to fight off enemies. You see? And to defeat his enemies. And so what's Hannah saying here? Hannah is hoping, praying, thanking God for an anointed king who's going to defeat God's enemies and provide deliverance for his people. I'll say that again. She's hoping, praying for an anointed king who's going to defeat God's enemies and provide deliverance for his people. Well, that just, when you think about this, you get bits and pieces, you get snapshots of it in David, don't you? But you get the greatest picture in David's greater son, the Lord Jesus, who crushed death on our behalf. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. David's greater son. We're going to see this even next week. This idea of an, an everlasting uh, priest. We're already getting snapshots of it, guys. But there's this great reversal that happens here. I mean, let's even, let's even take the nation of Israel, for example. They're just like this pathetic little group of federation states at the moment. Right? That's, when, that's what's going on here. And by the time you get to the end of 2 Samuel, what are they? There's an established kingdom. You have a temple. It's legit. That's why David actually prays a very similar prayer to this in the end of 2 Samuel. 
Initially, by the way, it was just one book. Like there wasn't like first and second Samuel, right? Like it was just the book of Samuel. The reason that you have one Samuel and two Samuel is it was too big to carry. You literally had to kind of break it up and say, okay, Dan, you got first Samuel, I got the second bit. Let's carry it over here and transcribe this thing. Just one book about God's faithfulness to his people. A king is coming, you see? And on one level, we see it with Saul and with David and with Solomon and with others, but it points to the greatest king, the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you in that kingdom? Are you in the king kingdom? The only way to enter into the kingdom is by turning from trusting in yourself, turning from your sin that has offended the king, and through faith in the Lord Jesus entering in. Do you know the king? Let's pray. Lord, we stand amazed as we reflect on this passage We know, Lord, that in new chapters, new seasons, we see the same story happen again and again, a miraculous birth, a forerunner. Lord, we, we cling now to the King of kings and Lord of lords, the Lord Jesus. We thank you, Lord, that Ultimately, this book, not just Samuel, but your whole Bible, is just one story that glorifies you, magnifies the Lord Jesus. And we pray for those here sitting this morning that have not entered into the kingdom, that have not turned to you in faith and repentance. We ask that you would grant them, save them, Lord. Remove from them hearts of stone and give them hearts of flesh. Grant them repentance even now. Lord, we, we can't wait for them to do it on their own. They'll never do so. So we pray that you would do that in your sovereign grace. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So friends, if you are here,